0: We are continuing to look at biblical anthropology in the book of Romans, examining God's view of humanity, our condition, our behavior, our standing before him as he is ruler and judge of his creation. And as we have seen over the last weeks, the news is not good. God sees man as enormously and thoroughly corrupted, rebellious and wicked in intent and action. And in the latter part of chapter 1 of Romans, Paul describes man's descent into corruption and immorality and his lengthy description of human wickedness at the end of chapter 1 in every way corresponds with the world as we actually find it, that we see all around us. Still, beside that, we all... um, know that despite these uh, rampant evils that he describes of many kinds, there are always voices calling us to do better, to behave more nobly, to think beyond our own pleasures, voices that call for moderation and fidelity and honor and truth and self-denial even. And these voices come wherever men live on earth, whether they have God's revelation or not. They are the voices of our God-given moral nature just expressing itself we are the voices of moral men and women and we acknowledge that the Bible speaks truly about man's descent because his wickedness is so obvious I mean I think it was Chesterton that said that the doctrine of original sin and human depravity are the only only biblical doctrines for which we have daily irrefutable proof Um, and it's true because every day in life you can see it not only in the world around you but probably in yourself And uh, this wickedness, which seems so impossible for people to shake off, is perfectly described by the Bible. And it tells where it came from, which nobody else does. But we must remember that the Bible speaks clearly about the moral man, the person that has the moral message, as well. And Romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 16 deals directly with the morally minded individual. But the news for the moralist is not good either because while he has moral ideas and has attained some level of moral living, at least from a human point of view, he stands guilty and self-condemned because he constantly breaks his own rules. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. God is perfectly just to condemn those who judge other people for the very things they do. If you hate somebody that gossips and you gossip, you've broken your own rules, you've broken, and thus you've broken God's rules. If you hate it when somebody lies about you or to you and you lie about others or lie to others, same thing. You hate it when somebody's dishonest with you, but you're dishonest with others, the same thing. You can go that right on down the line. Whatever your rules are, God will judge you by those standards if you don't know his standards. But everybody fails, even that low test, because we all violate even our own convictions, our own moral code, our own internal compass. So you don't need God's law to be judged as a sinner. You will be judged on your own moral convictions if you don't know the rules of God. And so we saw last time in verse 12 of chapter 2, he says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That really doesn't leave anybody out and everybody ends up under condemnation. Sinners will perish or be judged by whatever standard they measure others by. And the reality is God's holy justice even condescending so much that it permits men to have their own moral code as a standard of judgment God's justice finds every human guilty of transgressions. Therefore, every human is in need of a savior. It's really that simple. But Paul's discussion doesn't stop there. He has to go on and deal with what we might call a special case. Because he can talk about the wretched um, pagans who've fallen into all kinds of gross immorality you can just look at the day he lived the Roman Empire I mean it's pretty obvious the kind of lives most people lived in those days or you can look at the moralist and the moral voice that spoke out against those very same things and talk about them and how they fail their own standards but there's another case as well of all the nations and peoples of the earth one group and one group really only uh, in the ancient world at least stood out in a unique position as it relates to God and it's a group the Apostle Paul knows really well because he's one of them. And that's the Jews. First century Jews were raised so that Paul's discussion of man's depraved condition, all the things he said so far, even the moral man's failure, might leave them in their own minds sort of untouched. Like, well, yeah, that's all true about all that stuff, but that doesn't deal with me. The Jews were so thoroughly convinced of their own position Before God, Their own superiority, and I'm going to use that word because that's really how they saw it, and and some still see it that way. So superior over the pagan nations of the world that any talk of an equal condemnation before the throne of justice would immediately put them on the defensive. They would just say, well, that's not me. There were a whole series of arguments and defenses that the Jews would turn to in order to reject any idea of them being judged as sinners before the throne of God. And Paul, of course, knew these arguments really well because he once trusted in these very arguments himself. So it's not like he's talking from outside, he's talking from inside. He knows exactly how that mind works. He was not only Jewish, he was a Pharisee the most meticulous zealots for the law among the Jews and among the most proud and yet the most honored amongst the people. They thought, well, these guys are the guys. If anybody's going to make it, they're going to make it because they're so fanatical about keeping all these rules and all the laws. So this is very familiar ground if you've ever studied the Gospels because Jesus dealt with the same thing. Jesus had encountered the error of Jewish supremacy or superiority over and over and over again. And he himself, was particularly hated for challenging that. The only two times it ever says that Jesus was amazed at somebody's faith, that he actually stood back and said, wow, look at the faith of that person. It was Gentiles, both times. And he would say something like that. He'd say, I haven't found faith like this anywhere in Israel. And of course, they would just went nuts when he said something like that. How can you say that a Gentile would have greater faith than one of us? And uh, just hated him for that, openly. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to his own people, the Jews, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most holy people they knew, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, you've got to be way beyond where those guys are. And yet those are the guys everyone looked up to. So how, where did that leave you, you know? Of course, I left you exactly where he wants to leave you, looking for a savior saying plainly that the spiritual leadership in Israel, without genuine repentance and conversion, they would be excluded from the kingdom of the Messiah. That's what he was saying. In Matthew 23, 25, and most of Matthew 23 is devoted to Jesus' condemnation of religious hypocrisy as he saw it in the leadership of Israel. He blasts the Pharisees, and he says this in verse 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, actors! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. And of course he's talking about their heart versus their external life. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, actors, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so... You too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Pretty heavy stuff. But necessary because pride is the very thing that keeps men away from God. And Jesus had to break through, hammer through, pound through that pride to try to get them to turn. Some of them did. They need to be just shaken awake, you know. Wake up! And we need to hear that message too. Religion is not particularly well regarded in the Bible. What men do is shape it according to their own desires and their own often corrupt desires. Or they cloak their vanity and their arrogance in religious garb and use God as a way to gain approval for themselves in the eyes of other men. So as we work into Romans this morning, just remember Jesus' words there about the outside versus the inside outward and inward righteousness it's critical by the way John the Baptist uh, too uh, addressed the exact same kind of Jewish thinking that salvation was obtained by birth simply by being Jewish got you in good standing with God and when the scribes and the Pharisees came down to see what he was doing when he was baptizing all these uh, people that were coming to repent he turned to them and he said you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come you remember that? These snakes, what are you doing down here? And then he said, Therefore to them, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, see, he knew how they would think, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. He says, for I say to you, God is able to raise up from stones, children of Abraham. God can do that easily. That's nothing. And yet that was their total trust. He says, don't let your mind go there. Repent. Typical John. Pretty tough. So Paul in Romans chapter 2 is is addressing the same belief system, the same attitude. And listen, he's not being anti-Jewish. He is Jewish, and so is John, and so is Jesus, right? Paul knows the issues and the dangers because he lived them himself. And only by God's grace was he snatched from the system of religion which would have left him vainly self-sufficient and conceited and therefore condemned, self-condemned on Judgment Day. So he's been talking to the moral Gentile in the first half of chapter 2, but starting at verse 17, he now speaks to his fellow Jews. And he says in verse 17, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Let's stop right there. You notice right away that Paul gives a lot of detail about the kind of person that he's talking to, that he's talking about. He's not talking to just any Jew, but a certain kind of Jew, the kind he himself had been, and the kind most Jews would look up to. The overall theme here is the Jew's understanding of salvation based upon his relationship to his religion, through the law, through ceremonies, and through birth. After all, isn't a Jew chosen by God? The very name Jew, which comes from the tribe of Judah, means one who is praised. So every time you say, I'm a Jew, you're saying, I am one who is praised. I mean, that's really what you're saying. And uh, the Jew Paul is speaking to believes he has God's praise simply because he's Jewish. He has this existence as a Jew, and that brings him the praise of God. Because God chose him. And he offers three major reasons why he knows that he has salvation. And Paul's going to deal with each one of these things and say why they are not reliable guides. So the first thing um, is the fact that the Jews were chosen by God to possess and to proclaim the law of God. So this person then in verse 17, he says, he relies upon the law. That's where his trust is. And then he says, and boasts in God. He had the true God while the pagans had their ridiculous idols. Verse 18, the third thing he says, and we know his will, we know God's will through the law, and approve of the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. The Jew says yes to God's law. So he approves of those things. Back to the law again, notice the theme of the law, keeps coming back and back and back. The Jew did have, by divine revelation, tremendous insight into the nature of God and uh, both God's will and his nature, the essential things that Paul's talking about there, that the pagans didn't have at all. They had to guess at all that stuff. But the Jews actually possessed it, so they had this advantage. Verse 19, And are confident... Now notice all these verbs beginning at verse 17. They rely on, they're boasting, they know, they approve. They're confident in verse 19. And this is the certainty and the superiority. What what are they confident of? Confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law, back to the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. We have all these advantages, the Jew would say. What a privilege, what an awesome responsibility to be a custodian of the revelation of God. And there's lots of truth to this. Moses was God's spokesman, and they had his writings. Abraham was called of God. Unique promises, eternal promises were made to Abraham. David was God's man, the man whose throne would one day be the Messiah's throne. The scriptures were God-breathed, the mind of God. They had the mind of God in propositional form, given to men, pure and perfect. What a wonderful thing. They had so much, the Jew had so much going for him. But, they left out of the equation in considering their own standing before God a very critical issue. And that is sin. That insidious corrupting satanic principle in our fallen humanity. Twisting even what is good to vain, empty, and evil things. Paul's going to talk a lot more about that later in the book of Romans. The Jew Paul is speaking to has made a horrible mistake. It's not an innocent mistake either. It's a mistake of pride and self-exaltation. And it's certainly not only a Jewish mistake. But he's talking about that right now. They believe that they've been chosen as custodians of the law and that just being that, just having the law, saved them. They relished their position with an attitude, and you know, most sins are attitudes, an attitude of superiority and of disdain for other people. One can see it absolutely in the way they lived. You know, Alfred Edersheim, in the, I was going to say in the last century, but now it's two centuries ago, I have to keep jumping back because we're a year past, right? But in the 1800s, Edersheim was a, Jewish scholar a very great scholar who converted to Christianity and he wrote a number of works the biggest he wrote a wonderful book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah which is still a really useful examination of the life of Christ from a Jewish perspective it's an excellent book I would recommend it to anybody that can read writing that was written 150 years ago because it's uh, excellent but he wrote a little book called Sketches of Jewish Social Life which is just about what Palestine was like at the time of Christ Very, very good little book but he writes this uh, in that book um, he says, Readers of the New Testament know what separation Pharisaical Jews made between themselves and heathens. It will be readily understood that every contact with heathenism and all aid to its rights should have been forbidden, and that in social intercourse any Levitical defilement arising from the use of what was common or unclean was avoided. Now that was normal Judaism, but Pharisaism went a great deal further than this. And what what he means by that, he's saying they went a great deal further than the Bible. I mean, the Old Testament had all these separation things so that the Jews wouldn't become like the pagans. But he's saying now the Pharisees took it way beyond, way beyond. He says, um, three days before a heathen festival, all transactions with Gentiles were forbidden, so as to afford them neither direct nor indirect help according to their rights. This prohibition extended even to private festivities, such as a birthday, the day of return from a journey, etc., on heathen festive occasions, a pious Jew should avoid, if possible, passing through a heathen city, certainly all dealings in shops that were festively decorated. It was unlawful for Jewish workmen to assist in anything that might be subservient, either to heathen worship or heathen rule, including in the latter the, the election of courthouses and similar buildings. It need not be explained to what lengths or to what details pharisaical punctiliousness carried all these ordinances. From the New Testament, we know that to enter the house of a heathen defiled until the evening and that all familiar intercourse with Gentiles was forbidden. So terrible was the intolerance that a Jewess, this is in Jewish writings outside the Bible, so terrible was the intolerance that a Jewess was actually forbidden to give help to a heathen neighbor when about to become a mother. But the separation went much beyond what ordinary minds might be prepared for. Milk, drawn from a cow by heathen hands, bread and oil prepared by them, might indeed be sold to strangers but not used by Israelites. No pious Jew would, of course, have sat down at the table of a Gentile. If a heathen were invited to a Jewish house, he might not be left alone in the room, else every article of food or drink on the table was henceforth to be regarded as unclean. If cooking utensils were bought of them, they had to be purified by fire or by water, knives to be ground anew, spits to be made red hot before use, etc. It was not lawful to, either, to let either house or field nor to sell cattle to a heathen. Any article, however distantly connected with heathenism, was to be destroyed. Thus, if a weaving shuttle had been made of wood, grown in a grove devoted to idols, every web of cloth made by it was to be destroyed. Nay, of such pieces had been mixed with others, to the manufacture of which no possible objection could have been taken. These all became unclean and had to be destroyed. And it goes on and on and on and on. How could you live like that and not think of yourself as superior To these people, you could have zero interaction with and not tolerate in any way. You came into my house, I left the room, all the food has to be thrown away because you were in my home. Uh, Thanks. (laughs) Makes me feel good. Uh, And yet, first century Jews were very evangelistic. I don't know if you know that. A pious Jew would get up every morning, male, and pray this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. How can you help but have a certain attitude towards people if that is the prayer of your life, you know? Do you remember Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18? Keep your finger here and turn back to that real quick. Luke chapter 18 in the Gospel. He's contrasting two sinners, both Jewish. Only one of them is a Pharisee, and he doesn't know he's a sinner. That's his problem in Luke chapter 18 verse 9 it says he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt okay so he's talking to the same people Paul is talking to people who viewed themselves as righteous and viewed others with contempt and here's his story two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer now tax gatherers are what? Low wives right they're the people that were literally excluded from the community why they raised taxes for pagans I mean it's all those principles were applied to them they were Jews that collected taxes to serve Rome to serve pagan temples pagan idols and everything else so they were ostracized rejected utterly hated considered traitors so you have the Pharisee the godly man and the tax collector the low life, both in the temple at the same time praying next to each other Interesting picture. The Pharisee, verse 11, stood and was thus praying to himself. I like the way Jesus says that. He was praying to himself. I mean, he didn't think he was, but Jesus thought he was. He says, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood that and prayed that. I fast twice a week, verse 12. I pay tithes of all that I get. In verse thirteen, but the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, "God be merciful to me, the sinner." And here's what you might call what theologians call a dominical saying, a saying of the Lord. This is the pronouncement of Christ on that situation. Verse fourteen: "I tell you," Jesus says. This man, the tax gatherer, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. That's profound stuff. Notice only the tax gatherer went home justified. That is, only he went home a forgiven man. Only he went home righteous before God. The Pharisee is completely self-deceived. He's wrong. He's proud and boasting in all the wrong things. Well, I do this and I do that and I am this. And so he will be condemned. And that's what Paul is trying to save his fellow Jews from. The folly of sin and deceit. And this Jew's problem is he is clueless clueless about his real standing before God thinking he's the chosen he's Mr. Righteous and in reality he's hopelessly lost and Paul bleeds for him and pleads with him to realize that so back in Romans chapter 2 Paul describes just such a man a man relying on his possession of the law and a certain external conformity to that law and Paul's task is to wake up that sleeping soul and to help him see his need And he does this with some simple questions. It's a good method asking questions. He's not accusing, he's asking. It's a good way to start. Trying to awaken the conscience. And he begins in generalities. Verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You're so confident that you're a teacher of the immature, a light to the darkened soul. You're so confident in all this. Do you teach yourself? Now, right way, if somebody asks you that, it focuses your attention inward. That's his whole point. That's his purpose. To get the hearer to give attention to himself. You who preach that one should not steal. Do you steal? The word for steal in Greek there is kleptane. We get our fancy word kleptomaniac from that word, right? Uh, kind of a sneak thief. But sometimes in Greek, it just carries that sort of a general idea of, of dishonesty. So you preach honesty are you honest in all your dealings that's what he's asking Leon Morris the commentator writes it's easy to preach honesty to other people but not so easy to be scrupulously honest in all one's own dealings we are always tempted to grade honesties and by strange coincidence our own dishonesties have a way of coming out as minor ones and those of other people are serious have you noticed that? Because you had some sort of reason. Or the government's done this to me all this time. I can lie to them on this form or whatever, you know. We have, we, ours are minor. Other people's are big. Verse 22 addresses two more areas. You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? It's an interesting expression, robbing temples. Commentators really try to figure out what he's talking about. Does he mean like knock over a temple, you know? All right, everybody against the law are taken over. That did happen in the ancient world, by the way. Temples were used as banks and people stored wealth there because they were supposed to be sacred and people were supposed to be afraid to steal from them. But people did anyway. And uh, we don't know if that's what he's talking about. He's talking about Jews that were actually like going and a temple. Probably not. That wouldn't be the average thing the average Jew would end up doing. Although, there was a really famous case in um, Josephus a Jewish historian writes about this in AD 19 there were, this is interesting to me there were four Jewish men who built a very wealthy Roman woman in the city of Rome of a huge fortune telling her that all this money was going to go to the temple and in reality they kept it for themselves Tiberius was so mad the emperor was so mad that he kicked all the Jews out of Rome for a while and, um, which is funny to me because it, it's like you know, they had televangelists back then too doing the same kind of thing they do now it's just it's just funny <laughs> so, uh, you know, Jim Baker was there in Rome, you know, and he said, I'm going to build this big empire for the Lord, you know, if you just give me all your money. Uh, they were doing that back then, too. But, but um, I, don't, I don't know if that was yet. The idea of robbing temples, interesting term, it's only used once in the Holy Testament. So what does he mean? He may mean that God was being robbed of the devotion he requires. Some people take that interpretation. Some people believe that the word temple robbing may just carry the idea of sacrilege, of being impious in their lives. But the context to me sort of suggests profiteering. And I think that's probably what he's talking about. You guys have abhor idols, but um, you'll sell. You'll sell to pagans stuff that will help them in their worship. You'll sell an idol in a shop even though you're not supposed to or that kind of thing, dealing sort of on that level. I think that was more of a common practice. But it's hard to say exactly what he means. He, just mean, he might just mean being simply sacrilegious. But the clincher here is in verse 23. You who boast in the law... Through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? That's a really good question. You boast in the law, you break the law, so what does that mean? Aren't you really dishonoring God? And how can you look and say, I'm a saved man because I dishonor God? That's what he wants them to understand. They break the law all the time. So, what, are the, what does that really mean? That means they've dishonored God they can't rely on their law the logic is real simple how can you take refuge in a law you've broken it'd be like going before the judge you know and being a bank robber and saying yeah I, I robbed that bank but I want you to acquit me on that very ground I mean it's just weird because I know the law it's wrong it's wrong to rob from banks but I like to do it so don't put me in jail I mean it's just it's weird and he's saying that's what you guys are doing you're affirming the law, but you're breaking the law. And that dishonors God. Yes, you possess it. But all that does is condemn you because it makes you more accountable. If you say, I affirm the law, you're accountable to it. And yet you break it. Then Paul really nails it by bringing up the Old Testament. Because he's not making this stuff up. This is in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 20, 52, verse 5, and Jeremiah not Jeremiah, Ezekiel thirty-six twenty. both point to the idea of the Gentiles mocking God because of his need to punish the Jews for his wickedness, for their wickedness. They've done all these things and God brings judgment on them and so the Gentiles laugh. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the people of Jehovah. Oh, look what he had to do to them? Uh, the whole system that God set up, his whole law looks awful. And this chosen people make him look awful because of their behavior. That's what it says in the Old Testament. So Paul quotes that. Verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Just as it is written, he says. How can they claim a privileged position when Scripture itself condemns their lawlessness? See, so he's taking away their argument. Now this argument's pretty unassailable because got, Paul's got him dead to rights. But he knew exactly where that mind would go. And they say, okay, but I'm circumcised. I'm circumcised, so I'm saved. The rabbis actually had a saying, no circumcised person will be lost. That's what they taught. So if you're circumcised, you're saved. It's that simple. You're going to go to heaven. You're going to be in the kingdom. Salvation by surgery is really what it is ceremony that's what they claim circumcision was given by God to Abraham to mark out his descendants as belonging to the Abrahamic covenant Genesis chapter 17 verse 9 through 14 you can read it on your own I don't have time but it describes circumcision as a covenant in your flesh It's it's a physical mark to mark you off as one person that was tied to the covenant of Abraham and the Jew would think I'm in the covenant because I'm circumcised I cannot be lost to God That's simple. That's the conclusion they would draw. Here's Paul's response, verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is a value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. You break the law of God, you can't point to circumcision because it's just like you don't have it. You might as well pretend you don't have it because you don't, in God's eyes. If the circumcision is just a way again of saying, I am a child of Abraham. I am accountable to the law. And when you break the law, you're saying, I don't care about that anymore. So you're a transgressor, a violator. All circumcision does is make you more guilty because you of all people should know better. He's not making this up either. The Old Testament prophet said the same thing. Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses said... Behold, Deuteronomy 10.14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set His affection to love them and He chose their descendants after Him. That's where that verse is, that's where that idea is that the Jews are a chosen people. It's right out of the Bible. They are. But, He's not done. He chose their descendants after them, even you, above all peoples as it is this day. Then He commands them, Circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. They were stubborn and rebellious. You know Moses' story. I mean, he was constantly dealing with this stuff. He says, God has chosen you, but you would better have your heart circumcised. Cut away that stony heart and get soft inside. Obviously, you can be physically circumcised, but not inside. You can be hard-hearted toward God and physically circumcised. There's a very similar lament in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 26, where he cries out, All the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. And what do you think God really cares about? The surgery or the heart? See, that's exactly what Jesus was saying. It's exactly what John the Baptist was saying. The inside versus the outside. The Pharisees had all this external stuff going on. Looked really godly. They loved to pray in public. Tithed in public. Made it all look so good. But inside he said they were full of dead men's bones. Is it wise to claim salvation on external circumcision when God condemns and laments an uncircumcised heart? Is that wise? That's where Paul's going. So you see, to declare yourself better than a Gentile because of an operation you had, you had no say in for most of them. Most of them would be that would be done when they were infants it's foolish what matters is is what you have done you're standing according to the dictates of God's law and if you're a transgressor of the law that circumcision doesn't mean anything and Paul goes even further stating that an uncircumcised man in principle if he keeps the law he's better off than a circumcised man a Gentile that keeps the law is better off than a Jew who is circumcised and doesn't he says that in verse 26 if therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision and will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, not, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? It's just, it's just logical. But Paul's friend has one more place to go. That mind is going, okay, okay, let's forget circumcision. I am a child of Abraham, and that will save me. If the law won't save me and circumcision won't save me, I'm a child of Abraham. And promises were made to Abraham that cannot be broken. And that is the key point because it's true. Promises were made to the children of Abraham that cannot be broken. So Paul says, what is a child of Abraham? What is a child of Abraham? Verse 28. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit not by the letter and his praise is not from men but from God so folks a true Jew has Abraham's heart has Abraham's faith not merely his genetics look at the contrasting pairs in these two final verses 28 and 29 here outwardly inwardly flesh heart letter spirit man God when Nicodemus the great rabbi and theologian came to Jesus in John chapter 3 Jesus told him the Lord said to him you must be born again even you There must be God-given life within or all that stuff, all the religion, all the training, all the studies, all the rituals don't mean anything. And Jesus actually chastised, I think probably very gently, Nicodemus for not knowing that. In verse 10 of chapter 3 of John's gospel, he says, Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? You don't get this? This isn't part of your thinking? He was so caught up in man-made doctrines and rules and self-serving explanations that he missed the very thing that God was doing. Nicodemus was a good man by human standards, but he was lost. Sometimes when people read the Bible and the covenants with Abraham and everything like that, they, uh, I, they ask me, they say, will every Jew be saved? And I say, yes, every Jew who is one inwardly. In other words, everybody who has a circumcised heart who has come to God in faith and repentance and trusted in the Messiah that God has provided will be saved, yes. But not every externally born physical descendant of anybody, because that just doesn't matter, really. There's a story in Luke chapter 19 about a descendant of Abraham, another tax collector, traitor to his people, social outcast, wicked man. So short that he couldn't see when Jesus was coming down the street one day and the crowd was there. So remember the story, he climbed up in a tree And Jesus is walking by and sees this guy hanging out of a tree, looking at him. And he says, hey, come down, Zacchaeus. You've never met him before, but you knew his name. He says, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm going to have dinner at your house today. So Zacchaeus is all honored, you know, because a rabbi would never even talk to him. Wouldn't even be seen seen in his presence. And here the most famous rabbi in the world says, hey, come over to your house for lunch. Get something ready. So Zacchaeus goes home and gets it all ready. And we have no idea what happened. All we know is what happened at the end. We don't know the conversations, we don't know what Jesus said, we don't know what Zacchaeus said, but suddenly Zacchaeus is a different human being. Now what tax collectors could do in those days Boy, I'm going long today, aren't I? What tax collectors could do in those days was they could charge you whatever they wanted and the Romans would get their cut. The Romans only wanted their cut. If the Romans said, if you earn hundred dollars, we get twenty five. The tax collector could charge you thirty and keep the five for himself. He could do that if he wanted to, under their system. Whatever he wanted. All the more reason to hate them, right? So um, they could take bigger cuts, and, and so maybe it was dishonest gain. So Zacchaeus says, all of a sudden at the end of the story, he just jumps out and he goes, he goes, everything I've ever taken from anybody, I'm going to give back to them, not only what I took, but fourfold, which was the Old Testament law. If you stole something, if I stole a dollar from you and I got caught, I had to pay you four. They didn't have jails. That's how they did it. If I couldn't pay it, I was sold into slavery. Good system. I like it. But... Um, uh, so he says, anybody I've ever taken any money from, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. And then he says, and whatever's left over, half of it, I'm going to give to the poor. Different guy, different guy than the guy that was there that, that woke up that morning, totally transformed the individual. And Jesus says, wonderful, wonderful words. Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. He already was the son of Abraham, right? He was a physical descendant of Abraham, but not in his heart until he met Jesus. Then he became a son of Abraham. And then Jesus says, right after that, he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus was a lost son of Abraham. And Jesus restored him to be a true son of Abraham lost to the covenant, a mere physical descendant, but Jesus made him a true son of Abraham. So law and circumcision and birth, these are of no avail if the law has not been kept. And who keeps the law? No one. That's exactly where Paul wants you to go. That's where he's leading us, to realize that we all need a Savior. Wicked Gentile, chapter 1. Moral Gentile, supposedly, chapter 2. And pious Jew, second part of chapter 2. None of them keep the law, God's law or their own internal moral code. They're all transgressors and all invite upon themselves the wrath of God. So Paul's not there to the gospel yet but he's getting there that's where he's headed that's where chapter 3 comes in we're almost there because the good news is that all sinners Jew, Gentile everyone people like Zacchaeus can find salvation and new life in Christ that's, that's where he's going and everything Paul has said here about Jews in the first century and this is I think really important to say because we're talking about Jewish people and only a few of us here are Jewish but um, everything he's saying about them could be said about Christians in any century since christ came about church people the jews were in a unique position in the ancient world as custodians of the truth but they bore unique guilt based upon their violation of that privilege but that's not a jewish problem that's a church problem too isn't it a christian problem it's a it's a problem of anybody who's been granted privileges from god that they're accountable for Christians, and if you just look at verse 17 and Paul says, if you call yourself a Jew, you could just say, if you call yourself a Christian. And do, and do the whole argument exactly the same way. You could exactly echo Paul's language. People who bear the name Christian, can they make the same mistake? Yeah. Absolutely. Every one of the errors can be found in the church. An empty externalism. I'm a Christian because I was baptized. I'm a Christian because my family always went to church. I'm a Christian because I live in America and I'm not Jewish. You know, they go to the hospital. What are you? Are you Jewish? No, I'm, are you a Christian? <laughs> I mean, that used to be the way it was, literally. In fact, if you've ever watched that old movie, it's a great movie called Gentleman's Agreement about um, anti-Semitism in America, a great movie about Gregory Peck. If you're not Jewish in that movie, you're a Christian. I mean, they, have, they actually say that. They have no religious life at all. But they say, well, I'm a Christian because they're white and they're not Jewish. <laughs> this is weird that's the way people think it's cultural you know the time when I started pursuing Christianity when I got interested in Christ seriously was after an acquaintance in college asked me this question he said are you a born again Christian and I didn't even know what that meant I said a what what's that I said what's that I'm a Christian those were my words what's that I'm a Christian that's what I said because i was raised in the church but i had no idea what that was even though jesus said that was the most important thing you had to know he said it to nicodemus right you must be born again you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again jesus said that i didn't even know that i was raised in church i've never heard that before i was like a pharisee i had my own version of religion i had my own spiritual ideas god was in my box And I didn't care that I was completely unsubmissive to the God who made me and the one who I was going to face in judgment someday. I really didn't care. I was clueless. But I bore the name Christian. And only by God's grace and a faithful man's question was I moved to even reconsider. Maybe I've missed something. How about this Jewish problem in verse 24? The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What about crusades and inquisitions and televangelism and racism and hucksterism and judgmentalism and superior attitudes? What about all that stuff? Can Christians do that? Have we dishonored God as well, claiming Christ but transgressing his laws constantly? I'll never forget, I was in the same school when I was in college and I was a new Christian. I became a Christian and and um, I was in a real bad mood one day in the library and I was just rousing on a guy and one of my professors, a man I respected very much was standing off in another part of the library and he just looked at me he knew I was a Christian I was professing Christ because we, we were very vocal about it and he just gave me this look like what a hypocrite it was just his eyes it was just I still remember I don't, I don't remember things very well about anything I to remember my life but I remember that face